Blog Talk Radio. Towns 
didn't have a spectacular offensive game. He did have seven blocks, uh, which is which is great. He didn't have a spectacular offensive game, but you know we we finally saw Marcus Lee in probably his best game uh, since the Michigan game in the tournament. Seven point six rebounds, two blocks. Uh, he was very very effective. Uh, uh, last night, so I, I, I hope to see him get a little bit more playing time. The the thing that just stands out to you, and uh, Kevin Stallings, Vanderbilt's coach, touched on this at his post game press conference, and something we've kind of touched on before is, you know, to beat Kentucky, you're going to have to rely on a lot of people having off nights, and and rarely is that going to happen. Uh, I think the, the the good takeaway you can have is that when the game was on the line, you know, when it was about four or five points in the second half, uh, Vanderbilt wasn't going away, and, and the Harrisons really stepped up. They scored the last 11 points of the game uh, for the Cats, and Aaron, who was scoreless in the first half, scored nine of the last 11 and finished with a game-high 14 points for the Cats. And when you take a look at that and you see how he played, even though he didn't score well at the end of the Louisville game, he, he's becoming the clutch guy. He's becoming that guy that's going to make, make those plays to uh, to win the Cats game. So you kind of like, you like that. Um, I think last night we kind of saw what the crunch time lineup will be. And it looked like, uh, last night it was the Twins, Euless, uh, Willie Cauley-Stein, and they were kind of rotating towns and uh, Lee in. So I think that's what we'll see when the games get close, you know, especially in March. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, definitely the case. Because uh, there were some, you know, wondering, Dominique Hawkins got another start. But he ended up with seven minutes and of, of total playing time. It's kind of like you said, uh, when crunch time came around, it's like Cal got he got a direction he wants to go as far as the lineup is concerned and the rotation is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was kind of how you know Hawkins didn't didn't see a lot of action after the, the little bit he got at the outset. Um, but right. he is you know, worked his way into the starting lineup, but. Um, we just have to see how it goes. But like you said, that crunch time is, is kind of – he's already kind of – for last night anyway, uh, went a different direction. And it might depend on matchups and things like that in the future for, for Dominique. Well, uh, yeah, and I know the three we will definitely see out there for crunch time, you're going to see the Twins. You're going to see Willie Cauley-Stein. And I think you'll see Carl Towns, although he, he had some foul issues last night, but he's a good free-throw shooter, so you'll see him out there. And I think Euless was a better matchup last night uh, than than Booker was. So I think you'll kind of see those two kind of rotate depending on how things go. But when the game was tight with, you know, a couple of minutes left in the ball game, those are the guys we saw. It's it's Andrew and Aaron attacking and making plays. And, and really what I think a lot of people forget when it comes to Andrew Harrison his 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 playmaking, his benefit, it's not flashy, but he can get into the lane, draw the foul, and finish. 
you know, he can he has that. That's the advantage that uh, he has over Ulysses in those situations because Tyler was getting into the paint last night, but because of his size, he's not able to go up and finish, whereas Andrew can do that and, and draw the foul. And that's how uh, the Harrisons are, are, are successful for us. Um, and Andrew had a real strong take at the end last night, that drive where he uh, took contact and hung uh, and finished with the layup there at the end, in crunch time. They kind of sealed the deal, as well as Aaron with a three from the left corner. So those, those two big-time plays, uh, and both of those guys, both the twins were able to make those plays when they needed to be made. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing is I think now, uh, we may not see the platoons as much. I think we'll kind of see them in the first half. But the second half, uh, you know, Kyle's going with the more uh, standard kind of uh, lineup and, and, and substitution patterns. Uh, I think we're going to start seeing the Harrison's minutes go up. You know, Willie Collins' minutes go up. Uh, but the thing is, he still has the Cal still has that lineup flexibility because Bakari was able to go out and be productive last night uh, for stretches. So, uh, you know, again, he's not locked into anything. He's just, uh, you know, he, he can kind of see how things are going, play matchups. But I think we'll definitely see the Twins and Willie Cauley Stein uh, for crunch time. Absolutely. Now, I ask you this. I guess this time a, a week ago, um, right after you had covered the Ole Miss game that following Wednesday, um, Kentucky gets out to a, a decent lead, jumped on them kind of early, and then Ole Miss was able to uh, – well, it was a little bit more than a week ago, I guess. Uh, Ole Miss was able to get back into the game and stay in the game for the full 40 minutes. Uh, similar thing played out last night with you know, Kentucky being up 12-4, to 4, and then Vanderbilt continues to close the gap, keep it a you know two couple possession game. Um, for the most part, Kentucky did get up twelve in the second half. But was it more, you know, was it more Kentucky letting their guard down and relaxing, or was it more Vanderbilt taking that punch and and fighting back? Well, and, and here's the here's the thing is, particularly in conference play. Uh, you know, I was talking to some folks last night. Vanderbilt has routinely been kind of a tough team for Kentucky to play, no matter what. Uh, you remember the, the John Wall year, you know, when uh, that was a close game at Vanderbilt. And Vanderbilt, you know, didn't have uh, any kind of really special team. You know, here we had our team of all of these NBA draft picks. Stallings knows what he's doing when it comes to coaching. And I think uh, I kind of got the same feeling from him that I did from Andy Kennedy after the Ole Miss game is that these teams around the SEC, these coaches that have been around for a while, they're tired of hearing about Kentucky being, you know, far and away the best and the rest of the SEC being garbage. I mean, these guys, uh, you know, they're, they're paid to coach as well. And they're going to do things that they can do to put their team in the best uh, position to win, and and that's what that's what Vanderbilt uh, did. 
I mean, they, they rebound even with Kentucky, and, and they hit outside shots. They hit shots in transition, which I think you have to do before Kentucky sets his defense. Uh, that was the way that Vanderbilt uh, scored in the second half. A lot of things on transition, secondary break, where they've got their shooters running to the three-point line. If you can do that against Kentucky, you've you, you got to be successful at that uh, you want to, you know, get that early offense before Kentucky gets its defense set. Because at that point, I mean, these guys are long. I mean, we've all seen it. They shut down passing lanes like no other. But if you can get that early offense going and kind of get Kentucky back on its heels, that's how you have to do it. But, again, you know, we've said this before. A lot of these, a lot of these teams have had their game plan. They've executed their game plan as they want to. Kentucky still finds a way to win the game. So, uh, you know, obviously there's some things you can point to that they could have done better, uh, you know, Kentucky last night. But they won, and, uh, you know, you, you, you have to tip your hat to especially like Aaron Harrison digging down and shaking off a bad first half to come out to play. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. Um, now, with this being – your second game at Rupp Arena in a pretty quick time span. You had Ole Miss and then mm-hmm. Vanderbilt. And both of those games, you know, like we talked about, you know, Kentucky started off hot. Um, Vandy and Ole Miss, you know, fought their way back into the game. Can any of this be your fault? You're there and this kind of happened both times. I'm just saying. Is this a TV <laughs> effect? <laughs> Well, I, I, I was told if it's another close overtime game that I would not be allowed back at the building. Now, let the record show, I was there for Eastern and, and Boston uh, University as well, so it may not be me, but I was told that if it was another close SEC game that I would not be allowed back until next season. So I'm, I'm glad they, the Cats kind of put some distance and were able to pull that one out. Yes, absolutely. I definitely had to to mess with you. I was just putting two and two together, and I was like, maybe let's just jump up a quick TV conspiracy and, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, definitely good to see see them move on and get the W. Uh, let's flash back to Alabama. We just hit on Vanderbilt a little bit. Uh, Saturday, down in Tuscaloosa, Coleman Coliseum, we talked about it last Wednesday as we were looking ahead to the Alabama game. Of course, it's, you know, since done it over with. Coach Cal had never won down there. Uh, A lot of close games with Alabama and Anthony Grant. And, you know, a lot of people thought this game would be close. You know, when looking for possible pitfalls and bumps in the road, a place where Kentucky could suffer their first loss, Alabama was on a lot of people's radar for that. You know, they'd sold out the building uh, a long, long time before this game. Alabama had kind of circled it, if you want to call it that. And so, okay, they're athletic. They play good defense. We had Ryan Lemondon talking about that, too. And he was getting fired up. Well, bring it on. Let's see what they got. And, I mean, Kentucky went down there and just dismantled them. Uh, 70 to 48. Uh, it wasn't really that close. Alabama hit some shots at the end to cut it off. But, I mean, they were rolling in every sense of the word Saturday in Alabama. 
Well, and, and that's the, that's what's going to happen. Uh, I, I think we're going to see, obviously, the blowouts. We're going to see some some tight games, uh, which I think are good. We're, we're you know, we want to see what is the crunch time lineup going to be. Uh, and it's, it's good to figure that out now than not figure it out until March. Uh, but as we talked about with the Alabama game, they did exactly what they need to do. Uh, they took the Alabama crowd out of it early. And when that Alabama kind of closed it to that 10-point gap in the second half, and then within a blink of an eye, you know, it, it bubbled back up to near 30 points, uh, the margin did. That's what this team is capable of. Uh, last night we saw if if everybody doesn't play well, you know, this team is going to have to gut it out a little bit. But if everybody's doing what they're supposed to do, uh, my goodness, there's no team in America that can that, that will stop them. And, you know, that's the key with, with uh, any kind of team is, you know, can you bring that same kind of energy and, and focus every night out? So I would anticipate that looking ahead to South Carolina, I think, we we probably see another Alabama uh, situation uh, where they they come out focused and ready to, ready to go. Definitely, definitely possible. Um, and it would be good to see that at South Carolina. We talked about how it can be uh, tricky, difficult, uh, a hard place to play for Kentucky here in recent years. We talked about the John Wall team losing down there. Last year, of course, everybody remembers how things got out of hand quickly down there um, in Columbia last season. And that was as Kentucky was, was trying to find itself before they made their run late there in the tournament. Uh, the SEC Conference tournament run to the finals uh, and then the March Madness run to the championship game as well. Um, so it would, it would definitely be cool to see them just go to Columbia and take care of business and not have to be in a war or, or not suffer a loss, which has happened uh, in the past. So, yeah, it would be nice to see them roll in like that uh, and handle the Gamecocks. They lost to Tennessee last night, South Carolina did. And talk about weird stats, Tennessee has beaten South Carolina now something like 15 straight times in, in 19 out of the last 20 Uh it ended up in 66-62 Tennessee, but they, they had a sizable lead. South Carolina closed late. But that is just insane, the fact that, that Tennessee has handled them so many times, whether it be Knoxville or Columbia. Uh, and it would be nice to see Kentucky go down to Columbia and do the same thing. Of course, you know they're going to of course, be prime and ready like they always are, you know, number one team coming in. They're looking for a chance to storm the court and get that upset. Frank Martin will have them ready. Uh, they plan – Decent. He's building a program down there, but that was just crazy that it's so one-sided in the Tennessee-South Carolina series because Tennessee's definitely been uh, up and down, especially uh, since Pearl left. They, you know, Conzo was solid mm-hmm. defense, just never got behind him, and now Donnie Tindall's in there, and we'll see what happens with him and all the Southern Miss baggage and how that plays out. But he's got him playing good in his first year, and, and he's got him better than a lot of people thought. Yeah, uh, you know, and old guys like us remember uh, the 97 year where that South Carolina time, uh, team really took it to Patino and the Cats three times that year. That was the senior 
night that Patino got thrown out and was like the first senior night loss for Kentucky in a long time. Uh, South Carolina has been a uh, kind of problem child for, for a while. So I, I think that the Cats will be ready to come out and, and be focused and, and, and handle their business. Absolutely. It was um, uh, Mackey and Watson and all those guys back then. And then, yeah. of course, you know, Devin Downey put on that show in more recent years. So, yeah. Um, and then, of course, Darren Horn, who was calling the game last night, was, <laughs> you know, pulling the strings and calling the signals for South Carolina in 2010 when they pulled up that. Definitely. Definitely. So we'll we'll see how that goes. But the Cats, I mean, they're undefeated. Uh, they're they're still looking looking good. Maybe not uh, as invincible as they they kind of were for a stretch during the season. But a win is a win. And anytime you can beat uh, a team, even one you know like Vanderbilt, uh, you know it's a, it's a good thing. I, I don't think it was to the point where it was Ole Miss where there was a, a huge doubt. Uh, you know, I don't think people really thought that the Cats were going to lose last night, but it was just a little bit, a uh, little bit closer than I think a lot of folks were expecting. Yeah. Let's take us a quick break. Hit a little bit of Kentucky basketball. Uh, got a few football commitments that came in as well. Got some NFL stuff to get to, like we always do. Uh, just a bunch of variety NBA stuff. Kobe Bryant in the news a little bit. Lakers. Let's talk about that. Houston Rockets come on again at 10.30. Talk about that a little bit. Might talk about the Patriots, maybe. We'll have to see. Take a quick break. Listen to Cats Talk with Vinny and Terry on the Brandon Hardy Radio Network. Brought to you by blogtalkradio.com. Stay right with us. We'll be back in a few minutes. Good boss, good to see
this wherever I go Without this friendship I couldn't be in this And baby I know I don't think I'm bad Thank you And you know that we're better No, I don't think I'm bad Thank you And you know that we're better Love and friendship Blogtalkradio.com 845-277-9373 at Cat Talk Wednesday on Twitter. You got the Cat Talk Wednesday Facebook page at Vinnie Hardy and at T Brown underscore eighty. All the various types of ways that you can talk to us if you choose to do so. Um, and another thing too, if uh, you miss any of the shows now, you can check them all out on iTunes TV. You can just go to iTunes, search Cat Talk Winning Terry, and boom, every episode is archived, and this one will join all the previous ones as soon as we finish up tonight, man. That's big time. I hear the kids are into the iTunes, so uh, <laughs> I'm pretty excited about that. We're we're moving there. We we can step away from MySpace and tell folks we're on iTunes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, uh, I think Blog Talk actually like, would send every episode of each individual show was over there because you could do a search and you would see some people that actually listened on iTunes. I was like, how? What? iTunes? And, uh, and then, so, you know, got to looking and taking around on blogtalkradio.com, and then you could actually just submit the entire show as a podcast in its entirety. They reviewed it, sent an email, said, you know, we're – Gun show and blah blah blah. Thanks to iTunes team, and then a couple of days later, I just did a search again, and there it was. So we've been tweeting out the link to that on um, the Twitter handle for show at Cat Talk Wednesday, and of course our personal Twitter accounts, and then putting it all on you know Facebook page for show as well. So getting that out there, just another way for y'all out there who are listening, you can check it out on iTunes if you'd like to do so. So we want to just pass that along and hope you like it there as well. 
one quick NBA thing, man. I saw where um, Sean Marion, Phoenix Suns, uh, Dallas Mavericks currently with the Cleveland Cavaliers, has said he's going to retire at the end of the season. Uh, he played 15 years. It's crazy. He's already been in the league 15 years. Got drafted in 99. Uh, but this season is going to be his final season. Um, said he's 36, so he's just a shade younger than you and I. He said he felt he could play three more, but he just had his first child. So uh, not wanting to be away from watching his son grow up. He's eight months old now, so I read right. So he's going to retire at the end of this season. Of course, he's there in Cleveland with LeBron and Kevin Love trying to win another ring. He won one with the Dallas Mavericks when they beat LeBron in the Heat with Dirk and Tyson Chandler and that crew, Jason Terry and those guys, trying to get things right in Cleveland to get him another ring before he retires. But when you think of Sean Mary, of course, he did his thing there in Phoenix, especially when he was in his prime with Steve Nash and Marsh Potemeyer, and they had your boy, Mike D'Antoni, out there. But does Marion have the funkiest jumper that you've ever seen? It has a rank up there on your list. Yeah, the the whole mechanics of how he gets the ball from, uh, you know, from the, the, the cock and ready position to the rim, I, I'm not sure if there's a uh, way you, you can use physics and actually describe that. Uh <laughs> But it's been it's been effective. It's a kind of a shot put flip uh, kind of deal. But yeah, it's it looks awkward, but it's uh, you know uh, it's very effective. And I think he was one of the few guys. You know, he came in as a high flyer. Uh, you know, the Matrix, and uh, kind of remolded his game. You know, later years in Dallas and now in uh, in Cleveland. So I, I think that's a pretty. Uh, you know, that's pretty remarkable. You don't see too many guys that kind of change their approach to the game like that. Yeah, yeah. A role player now, but he, you know, he did, he, he transitioned well. Some never find a, a way to adjust and still be effective as they get late in their careers, but he found a way to do so. Um, off the top of your head, whose shot is uglier? Sean Marion's, I'm going to go old school, and you probably already know where I'm going. We did not rehearse this. Or Bill Cartwright. But Bill Cartwright had, he had that over-the-head kind of hitch, didn't he, if I'm remembering it correctly? Yes. But it's, there was like a, his arms like a weird straight out. Shot. Yeah, his, yeah, his arms would be straight yeah. out. He would bring have the ball at his, you know, at his midsection area. And it would kind of rotate clockwise, just like a clock, and he would kind of get almost right up above his head when he released it. Really robotic, especially at the free throw line. It was really pronounced there. But even in, you know, up and down in transition, or if he got a face up and shot a jumper, it was the same way. Uh, I mean, his elbows weren't really bent. I mean, he was a seven footer for those, you know, for you kids, played with the Bulls. Uh, with Oakley and Jordan, the young Michael Jordan, uh, then went on and played with the Knicks as well, um, and then was assistant for a long time too. But it's, he was so rigid with the way he would sway and bring his arms up to get to the point where he wanted to let the shot go. But those two, to me, 
I mean, they're gonna stand out. I mean, there might be others who think one's uglier or, or more odd, if you will, but those two always kind of jump out at me. Yeah, uh, it's kind of up there with uh, Chris Webber had kind of a robotic jump shot, but I think as far as free throws, I'd have to go with Larry Johnson because, you know, he would go all the way up with a regular motion, stop, and just shoot uh, with his wrists only, which I always thought was, yeah. was more than awkward. And he would get – I would venture to say that he led the league in lane violations because – Guys were trying to wait and wait and wait, but his paws would just would just get you. You had to step in the lane right at the top of it because you thought he was going to release it. But he would definitely hold it. Um, yeah, definitely Larry Johnson. That's a good one, too. Um, I think Jack Sigma, if we go way back, he had an old funky shot, too. But he was very effective with it. But there are lots of different ways to do it. Um, and even on the college level, you go to the UK, a lot of people will think back to Wayne Turner as he was a right-handed player, but he kind of shot it to the left side. You know, his right hand was over, kind of over his left thigh when he let his go. Uh, I used to catch a little flight for that because I would kind of be that way too. I wouldn't go straight up with it being right-handed. It was kind of over that way, and everybody, oh, there you go, Joe Wayne Turner jumper. But, yeah, Wayne Turner kind of had a different-looking shot uh, when he was at UK during his time there. Uh, I shoot off to the side like uh, Reese Gaines uh, that played at Louisville, you know, way back when. I shoot from the right shoulder. My shot does not go over my head like it's supposed to. So the funny story, I was teaching my oldest or working with her on how to shoot, and I'm telling her, you know, you need to shoot like this. And she said, well, Daddy, that's not how you shoot. And I said, well, that's, you know, uh, one of the reasons I didn't play uh, for Kentucky. And my youngest says, well, Daddy, you're not very tall. You can't run very fast. I said, well, there's a lot of reasons I didn't play for Kentucky, one of which was I, I can't shoot very well. So uh, my girls keep me humble. Man, they – they broke down the full scouting report. I mean, right there, boom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they got me. It's short, slow, but I'm I'm just like you. I'm just to the other side. I'm 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 a little to the left as well on the way up. But yeah, I know what you mean. I'm just on the other side, and people definitely pointed it out. And my kids will be pointed out here soon too. Uh, it's warm down here for the past couple of days, so uh, me and my oldest went to the court and we're shooting, running around. He's sick, so, uh, you know, running around and dribbling and those early days when you're trying to get the, the ball up to the rim, um, he'll get a little bit stronger. He'll be getting it right up there. He's brushing the net with it, but uh, we had a good time, and there'll definitely be more of that, so I know where you're coming from. <laughs> Keeping the NBA, man, I'm going to talk a little bit about your Los Angeles Lakers and the news. Uh, more off the court because it's a long season, as we know. Um, the lineup isn't what it was projected to be, injuries. Um, and so the losses are mounting up for them. From the Forbes, your Los Angeles Lakers are the most valuable team in the NBA. Uh, the average 
for the league is $1.1 billion. The Lakers come in at an estimated $2.5 billion, so more than doubling the league average and leading the way. Uh, I think my Rockets are down there near the bottom of the top ten, uh, but your Lakers are head and shoulders the most valuable team despite what's going on on the court this year. I mean, they're, they're popular and everybody knows it. And that's, they got that going for them anyway this year. Well, and I think, you know, this this kind of came up with the whole uh, Clippers uh, situation. And once the Clippers were valued at a billion dollars uh, with the whole Donald Sterling situation, then you then you have to say, okay, that's kind of setting the, the market for some of these teams. And if the Clippers are worth one, then the Lakers are happy worth 2.5. I mean, just – <laughs> uh, and that just that just kind of makes sense, uh, but it also goes to show that when you know the league has lockouts and there are player strikes, it's always funny how the owners always cry poverty that they're they're hemorrhaging money that they can barely make it. That you know, and I understand there's a struggle for some of the small market teams, but when you look at what do you, was it like ten or eleven teams or a billion dollars or whatever it is? That's a pretty good, it's a pretty good investment. So if you you know if your average team is worth a billion, uh, it, it's hard to cry poverty uh, in those situations. So that's just something to keep in mind for the next uh, round of uh, negotiations. Yes, and the the lowly bucks when you take out what they've done this year. That's an exception here historically for them. I think they sold their team last year, the year before last, and they went for a half a billion. I mean, talking about Milwaukee, five hundred and fifty million or something like that, and they actually just had a sale where you know ownership changed hands there. So, like you said, if the, if the Clippers, who are you know prior to the past three or four years, had not been good. You know, they have a good team now. We saw what just happened when money changed hands there with, you know, uh, Donald Sterling leaving the roost. If they are going for over a billion, like you said, the Lakers would definitely have to be a lot more than that. And if the, the Bucks are coming in over half a billion, you know, that lets you know <laughs> where the upper echelon teams are going to be. If, you know, my, uh, Milwaukee's bringing up the rear with $500 million in change. Well, and, and, and Bill Simmons always kind of talks about this, particularly with, with lockouts and labor's things, how the owners do a good job of painting the players as being greedy and, you know, crying poverty. But when there's an NBA team for sale, there is a list of wealthy people that want to get in. And all these people have made their money in other business ventures, why would they get involved with something that's going to lose money? It makes no sense. I mean, no sense uh, at all to do that. Uh, so, like I said, that's just something to to keep to keep in mind. Absolutely. And they had a few quotes from Steve Ballmer, and how he was he was talking about how um, he was excited about it. You know, he was spending his own money, of course, but he was going to be careful with his own money. But the upside, he was happy with the product. On the court at the time, um, you know, he's done a lot riskier things 
with his money and done well, you know, whether it be for himself personally or from a business standpoint. So he, you know, he was going through all the pros as to why, you know, he made that investment to buy the Clippers. So like you said, uh, if it hadn't have been Bomber, it would have been somebody else. There were all kinds of, you know, groups being formed and making bids and trying to be that next owner of the Los Angeles Clippers. So, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. And, and that's and that's the thing, too. Uh, you, you, you look at the NFL. Those teams don't sit on the market for long. I mean, that's just uh, these teams, they do make money. And uh, – for them to kind of cry poverty, I, I don't. I just don't think is. Uh, well, that, I mean that's a that's a conversation for another day. But I'm just not surprised that the Lakers are kind of leading the way. Uh, you know, being in Los Angeles, uh, all the media deals that you know they have, and, and being able to charge premium uh, ticket prices and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I'm not surprised. Yeah, absolutely. Um. And real quick on the football note, we talked about Kentucky getting another couple of commitments, um, one of them being Chris Westry, who flipped from Auburn to Kentucky, um, a DB, so that is good. Um, and when, you know, somebody like Auburn and, and Arkansas and those teams in SEC uh, are wanting this type of player, uh, and he's coming to Kentucky, and, you know, they enjoyed his time there. Six four one eighty. So he's a big, long, lanky DB. Uh, if he stays there at Kentucky, it's good to see him coming to be one of Coach Stoops' players. You know, to help that defense out. Yeah, and and Kyle Tucker, who writes for the Courier Journal, kind of says, especially with football rankings. Uh, it can get a little muddled, you know, with so many prospects and that kind of thing. But you have to look at, okay, who who are you beating out, you know, for these players? You know, even with Damian Harris, you know, not coming to Kentucky, to be in that discussion with Alabama is a totally different situation than it was just a few years ago. So the fact that Kentucky is getting players that these other top teams want I think is is pretty. It, it just bodes well for the direction of the program, and and what Stoops uh, and company are doing. You know, next year um, that's going to be that's going to be a pretty big year. I mean, we're looking for six to seven wins. I, I think that's that. This is going to be the year where we're going to want to see a lot of uh, not just on the field improvement. We got to see some W's. So I, I'm just saying, I'm just excited that the recruits are still coming and, you know, the current players are buying in. I'm excited about that. Yeah, and for a long time, um, before Mark Stoops, we saw Kentucky in the 50s and the 60s and lower, you know, it fluctuated. Uh, Every now and then they bump up to maybe the 30s or 40s nationally as far as recruiting is concerned. And you would look at the prospect and you know, he chose Kentucky over, no no disrespect to them, but over, you know, Eastern Michigan, Miami of Ohio, uh, you know, Ohio, U, places like that. You know, you know, no disrespect to them, but like you just said, you, you're getting the guy uh, who's, who's coming to Kentucky. If he committed from Auburn, coming to Kentucky, 
from instead of Auburn or Arkansas or a, a big-time SEC school, uh, we see what Auburn's been doing for the past few years. Um, solid season this year, 13 seconds away from the national championship year before. Uh, and Gus Malzahn is doing big things down there, and now you bring in Will Muschamp. They're going to continue to recruit and continue to be a factor in the SEC West. And to get a guy like that, you want to build depth and get as many players like that as you can, but that's definitely going to be a help. And our corners have been a little bit small, you know, get out jumps for balls, get out, you know, in position to make a play, but, you know, you know the opposing receiver out fights them, out muscles them. Sometimes we've seen that take place. Uh, the Parker kid there in Louisville, you know, among others, we've seen plays be made on them. So uh, if he stays there at corner or somewhere else, wherever you know, Coach Duke sees fit for him to go, uh, a big 6'4 kid on the defense is going to help no matter where you put him. Exactly. And, and you have to believe when you look at, uh, you know, how, how Stoops did with his construction of, you know, the Florida State defense kind of helping them set the table for, uh, you know, their championship. You have to believe he, he knows what he's doing when it comes to, to that side of the ball uh, specifically. Absolutely. And, of course, you always say on this show that we're old. You reference it, you know, not, maybe not every show, but once every other show, and we know we're, you know, 37, a 6'4 defensive back, so that automatically brought back shade of, for me, in the NFC East, being a Dallas Cowboys fan, you know, you have you have Michael Irvin, you know, 6'2 wide receiver on one side. You have Alvin Harper, 6'2", 6'3", a hot jumper at Tennessee before playing football for the Cowboys. On the other side, you know, the New York Giants had Jason Seahorn as a corner. He was about 6'3". The Philadelphia Eagles had Bobby Taylor. He was about 6'3", 6'4". And you just didn't see big, you know, tall corners because there was always, you know, scouts would say problems swiveling the hips and turning and running. You always had, you know, once again for me, the Cowboys fan, you had to contend with Daryl Green, you know, speedster, short, fast, jet, quick guy, you know, locking up your corner. But those two guys uh, were kind of the exceptions to the rules, Seahorn and Taylor. Um, but, there, you know, it has been done before, even at the NFL level. And there's a couple that are still, you know, decent size now. Like Seattle's got some guys. And um, the dude for Denver, uh, Akeem Tlaib, I think, he's, kind of, he's fairly tall, too. So it, it happens from time to time. Well, and, and the Niners have some some fairly tall six foot plus guys as well, and and what that does when you we kind of talk about uh, Seattle is you can play your base defense if you've got really big corners. When you look at Seattle play, they don't really have a lot of like a nickel package, if you will. They kind of stay in their same base defense. So you're not having to substitute as much. And if you've got really good linebackers, which, uh, you know, the Niners have had and Seattle has had, uh, that just gives your defense a lot of flexibility where you don't have to, you know, a lot of substitutions, a lot of different packages. You just kind of, hey, this is what we do. You try to score on us. Um, 
So I'm hoping that uh, if that becomes that kind of situation uh, with Kentucky's defense is, you know, you kind of get away from some of the exotic stuff and you just have the studs where you just line them up and say, okay, go ahead and score if you can. Yeah, yeah. And that would be a real nice fight to see. And and it's, he's definitely building towards that, um, for sure. Tlaib is 6'1". I had him a couple inches taller, but uh, he's not 5'10", you know, 5'9", 5'10", out there trying to go up with Calvin Johnson. 6'1", is still a pretty good size. Uh, but, yeah, the 6'3", 6'4", guys, there's not a lot of them. Like you said, Seattle's got some guys. Um, but, yeah, so we'll see what happens with Chris Westry at Kentucky. Speaking of Seattle, you know them well. You know, having to see your team face them twice a year. They were as dead as dead could be for about 58 minutes Sunday in the NFC Championship game against the Green Bay Packers. And, you know, special teams played a big part in them getting their act together and winning the game. They had a fake field goal that they converted for a touchdown. Um I think that was the first point that they had gotten. That was their first touchdown. Um, we're still in desperation mode, down 19-7. to Had to kick an onside kick, and it was recovered by former Wildcat, speaking of wide receivers, Chris Matthews, a big receiver that came to Kentucky for a couple of years. Uh, he recovers it. He was able to score again and get the two-point conversion. Uh, it was 19-14, and then it went ahead 22-19, to which made Green Bay have to get a field goal to tie it up instead of, you know, going down to kick a game-winning field goal. Uh, the game goes to overtime, and Russell Wilson again makes a, a heck of a throw to seal the deal in overtime. So, But, yeah, the last, you know, two minutes plus overtime, Seattle finds a way you know, Green Bay does so much wrong. Seattle does so much right. The right and wrong just kind of pass each other in the night, and the the scoreboard reflects it, and next thing you know, Seattle was able to get out a 28-22 win to go uh, to their second straight Super Bowl. Well, you, you, have, to, you have to tip your hat to uh, Seattle and what they're doing, particularly Russell Wilson. Uh you know, I mean, last year what they did in the Super Bowl, uh, and and really, you know, getting the better of my Niners uh, here the last few seasons as well. Uh, and it just goes to show you when you look at because you know we're hitting that build up toward the NFL draft, and we're going to be hearing all these things from Mel Kiper Jr. and Todd McShay and this person and that person. You know, Russell well Russell Wilson was kind of an afterthought when he got drafted. Too small, too this, too that. And even Tom Brady, I mean, it's still hard to believe, you know, he was a sixth-round pick, you know, a forgotten pick. You know, uh, ESPN had a full documentary and all the uh, quarterbacks taken uh, in front of him in the draft. Uh, So I think this should just be – this Super Bowl should just be a reminder that, you know, maybe these guys don't know what they're talking about all the time. Uh, I mean, you've got some a few can't-miss guys, you know, Peyton Manning, and even he was debated. I think a lot of people forget that when he came out, it was him and Ryan Lee. It was 50-50 on who was going to be better. 
you know, obviously in retrospect that seems ridiculous, but that was a big debate. Uh, so when you look at the rosters of a lot of these players, uh, or a lot of these teams, I'm sorry, uh, you're, you, you've got these small town or small school guys. You've got these later draft picks uh, that are helping these teams win. So that's just something to keep in mind as we kind of build up toward the Super Bowl. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like you said, Manning Leaf was as highly debated uh, as, you know, Kevin Durant, Greg Oden, you know, that kind of same thing in the NBA. Um, you know, Leaf had had a good career out at, at Washington State. Um, and, you I mean, you just never know. You just never know what's going to happen, how hard guys are going to work. Yeah, you know, the system, the coach, all of those things uh, come into play. I still, I still tend to believe that Tim Couch is not going to the expansion Brown. Uh, his career would have played out a lot different with him going at the number one pick as well. You just, just never right. know, you know. And the Colts were horrible, you know. So, you know, so were the Chargers. The Colts were horrible when Manning went there. You know, he was throwing interceptions all over the place. Uh, Jim Mora had some funny sound about that too. You know, Turner, you think Manny had six interceptions in the game or something like that. But you know, he stuck through all that. You know, getting getting his clock cleaned, and um, he was able to, of course, have the career that he's had. You just you never know um, if he's in a different team. Does he still go on to be Peyton Manning? I mean, he's got the pedigree. Uh, he's you know. A uh, football junkie going to put the work in, but it's like you, said, you just you just don't know. It's such an inexact science, despite all the number crunching and research and guessing and speculating and thinking you know what's going to happen. Despite all of that going into it, I mean, <laughs> anybody guess is as good as anybody else can guess. Right, and uh, outside of the once every five to six year players. Uh, you know, t- uh, where there's just a no-brainer, like, okay, LeBron is going to be the number one pick. Okay, I mean, that, you know, Shaq is going to be the number one pick. Uh, you know, you, you just don't run into it that often. Uh, so it, it is, it, you're, it's your best guesstimate. Is it going to be the right situation for the player? Is he going to work? Is the, the scheme going to work for him? I mean, there's just so much that goes into it that, you know, I'm glad that's not my job. Yeah, that's for sure. That is for sure. And uh, like I said, it worked out for Seattle to go and defend their title. Um, I think most of, of Big Blue Nation thought it would be Randall Cobb and Tim Mastay. Uh, Mastay going for his second ring, Cobb going for his first. That would be, you know, the U.K. guys that you'd be pulling for in the Super Bowl. Um, but it's going to be Chris Matthews. Uh, and I wrote a little piece about him after, you know, the game. It's kind of the right place at the right time, not only being in Seattle at the right time, but also with him covering that kick, right place, right time. Uh, he was going to go make a tackle, assuming that Brandon Bostic, the tight end for the Packers, uh, is, is going to, you know, block like he was told to do so. Uh, Matthews going down to tackle somebody on the hands team, and, of course, the Bostic bobble takes place, and Matthews is sure-handed, and he comes down with it. And if that doesn't happen, 
you know, Seattle is sitting at home right now. That was just as important as any other other play that was made in Seattle's comeback. Uh, and after leaving Kentucky, Matthew was there with Cleveland for a little bit as an undrafted free agent, but he was let go before the 2011 season started. So he went up to Canada for a couple of years and tore it up. You know, I kind of lost track of where he was at. Uh, he was the rookie of the year up there uh, in the CFL, uh, almost 1,200 receiving yards, 81 catches. Um, so he gets another try there with Seattle. He was on the practice squad. He bounced around you know, practice squad. He made the 53-man roster in December. Games under his belt. Three regular season games. He makes one tackle. Put him out there on special teams in the NFC title game. He comes out with an onside kick that continues the improbable comeback that Seattle makes. So good to see uh, good things happening for a former cat. You know, it wasn't if, if being honest, nobody the cat would be pulling for based on how that game was going. Because Green Bay was in control, which was surprising me. Because when they played in week one, you know, Seattle had just gotten their rings and it was the opening night of the season and they dismantled Green Bay. And I kind of figured it would be hard for for this to happen again. I thought I thought Seattle would, you know, beat them again. In Seattle, it's going to be difficult for Green Bay. I know they're playing well, but Seattle was on the road, and Green Bay is not the same team when they're on the road as well. But, you know, Seattle was getting beat down, and then, of course, it takes a play like Magic. Once again, it helps. Them. Once they got sparked, that was just as big as anything else that happened. So good to see Chris Matthews do that, and good to see you have a shot at winning a ring. They play the movement. Yeah, and that just goes to show, you know, that that coach speak is always it, it becomes coach speak for a reason. You you have to play until the final. You know, whistle. You, you have to keep fighting because you never know. You, you never know. Every great comeback starts with that one play. You know, we've had Cameron Mills on the show talking about, you know, in 98 against Duke, there was just, you know, that light switch went off where one play needs to the next, leads to the next, and the next thing you know, you've taken all the momentum from the other team and you go on to win the game. So you never want to quit. Yeah, absolutely. So I was happy to see uh, Matthews have a little bit of success. Um, take another little quick break to talk about the AFC side and all the things going on surrounding the AFC championship game uh, and all the fallout since that game has taken place. Uh, get thoughts on that. Listen to Cast Talk. With Benny and Terry on the Brandon Hardy Radio Network on blogtalkradio.com. Be right back in just a few minutes. Now, my wife, 
DBN is his leader. Um, Next Cats, Ben Roberts, says that on Twitter that uh, Ross uh, is a Juco player with three years of eligibility. Uh, so you throw a big 6-6 receiver if everything goes the way it goes. If he continues to want to be a Kentucky, continues to be his leader, uh, you have a 6-6 receiver, which is always good. We just talked about the big receivers and uh, how most of the time they're going against little bitty corners. Um, but, of course, it is recruiting, and we talked about how the draft was in exact science. So are the decisions that a lot of these young guys make. You know, I'm not a huge recruiting guy. I, mean, I kind of keep up with it a little bit. I'll see somebody tweet something or an article here and there. But I don't just jump head first into, uh, you know, who we getting for 2015 or who's looking at for 2016. I kind of check them out. Once they're here, then I'll, I'll see where they are or look at who they chose Kentucky over uh, and then go from there. But if it works out to get both of these guys, I mean, you can't teach big and tall, um, six four defender or six six receiver. If both of those guys end up at Kentucky, I think mean, that's that's good, man. We'll take them, and we'll be glad to see athletes of that caliber continue to come in. Uh, definitely, definitely. Uh, that's why all signs are kind of pointing toward uh, Kentucky, kind of moving moving out of the cellar, if you will. Uh, uh, and, and and moving on up to the east side. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> are you a are you a big recruiting guy? Do you just pour over every nugget of news, or you know how do you you know check it out or keep listening to accept news, or you know what type of recruiting person or fan are you? So I mean, it's year round anymore. I, I am not uh, a big recruiting guy. I've kind of written some pieces where, you know, if we get somebody, great, but I, I don't follow recruits. I, I wait till they get on campus uh, for that yeah. kind of thing. Uh, number one, uh, Coach Cal does not need our help in recruiting. We don't right. need to tweet at players, tweet at their parents, and this kind of – that Cal does not need our help. And there are certain folks on, on Twitter that seem just, just hell-bent on – providing help where none is needed or warranted. Uh, yeah. But as far as Stoops and company, he's, uh, you know, he, he's showing that he knows what he's doing as well. So I, I think sometimes with recruiting, we take our eyes off of the right here, right now, and we start looking ahead. You know, people are always talking about, you know, who's, who's Cal mm-hmm. going to get. And in 20,000, uh, you know, 20,000, I'm old there. But in 2015, um, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, this team right here, we're undefeated. Uh, you know, the the odds on favorite to win the championship. I'm enjoying the right now. I'm enjoying the, the guys on campus seeing, uh, you know, Booker develop and, and Trey Lyles that was making some phenomenal plays last night. I'm for the right here, right now, instead of what could be, what can be, what might be. You know, right now we've got a pretty good team. And, you know, as we've said before, when when Cal leaves Lexington, whenever that is, however that goes, we're going to be looking back at this time as a a golden era of Kentucky basketball. 
you know, last night, uh, Tony Neely, the SID there at Kentucky, uh, acknowledged that it was Cal's 100th home game uh, since he's come to Kentucky, and he's 96-4, and which is the best record for the first 100 games in uh, Kentucky history. And someone asked him about it, and Cal, as he will do, as we kind of talked about with Ryan Lemon, uh, you don't need to give him much to get him started. And he went into his infomercial about helping, you know, kids realize their dreams and, and guys buying in uh, to what he's doing. And, of course, you know, he named uh, all the guys that have come through and things like that. Um, I, I, I will find other things to worry about, uh, even in my sports life, than, than Cal not getting a recruit. I just there's other things to to focus on. So I, recruiting, I, I really don't. Uh, I don't pay that much attention. Yeah, it's, I'm the same way. <clears throat> you know, and it's just, it's just so big that I hear about it, which is kind of the case. You know, I hadn't heard about either of these guys until you know, saw it on Twitter, heard it on a couple uh, other talk shows or something like that. So you know, I was like, well, let's let's pass it along, then. You know, but. As far as me looking and following uh, Chris Westry and Kyle Ross, I didn't, I didn't know, you know. But if they come to Kentucky, that's that's cool. Um, and we'll see what happens here in a few months. We'll know that in a few months they'll decide, and that'll be that, you know. But uh, they just won't pass along since there was some news concerning UK. <laughs> but it's sure if you want the in-depth, <laughs> big-time recruiting. We're not the dudes for that, as we just established. So. <laughs> yeah, it's just there's there's too many variables, and, and I can't keep keep up with what some high school kid may or may not do. That's uh, <laughs> to me, that's not very fun. You know, not to knock the guys that do it. There's a lot of guys out there, uh, particularly for Kentucky, that do it and do it well. Uh, yeah. But that's just that is not my forte. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. That's recruiting wrap-up on Cat Talk Wednesday. just want to hit that real quick. But uh, we were talking about the uh, the AFC title game. We, we hit the NFC. The AFC, uh, you had the Colts team who went to Denver and won, but they were still run, weren't a match for New England. Uh, New England won 45-7, but the bigger news was what happened a little bit later, a few days later. Um, this whole you know, deflate gate that's surrounding the Patriots, 11 of 12 of the footballs used in the NFC Championship game of the New England Patriots football were underinflated. Um, what are your thoughts on the whole thing, how it's, it's playing out with deflate gate TV? I think historically, the the Patriots are gonna they're gonna have that that asterisk. When you look at Spygate and with the the filming of opposing team signals, and the fact that Roger Goodell and the NFL disposed of the complicated tapes before sharing what was exactly on them, uh, so that I think there's always been that cloud uh, with that, and and now you you get. Uh, this whole situation where more and more is coming out that the Colts thought something was wrong with the balls while the game was going on, 
um, you know, it, uh, and you just kind of read about the process of, uh, you know, that the officials check all the balls for the teams and this, that, and the other. And for them to be, if they were properly inflated uh, before the game, then how, you know, kind of midway through the first half were they deflated? Um, so you, it, there's a lot of moving parts here, and I'm not sure, you know, how clear we'll get. But when you've got 11 out of 12 that are deflated, um there that I think that represents something's going on. I mean that's your that's your kinda where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh and the thing is I don't think anybody's saying that that is the sole reason the Patriots won. You know, I never thought that uh videotaping the signals would be the sole reason that the uh that they won those Super Bowls. But it's why do it? Why even get involved in that? Uh, that's that's my whole thing. Is why even go that route uh, if that's what you are doing? Yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, just out scheme everybody. Yeah, you know, just be more screwed with your draft picks than everybody else, as you already done. You know, you, you've proven that you, you know, you, Belichick's a good football mind. All this, great Brady's, you know, great quarterback. We just referenced him and all the quarterbacks that went ahead of him. I mean, there's this. How how are you gonna do this after Spygate? You know, uh, Tyler Conway wrote an article on Bleacher Report, and um, just uh, eleven of twelve, like you mentioned. Each underinflated by two pounds, um, and also some stats brought out how that New England is the best passing team in cold weather. So that <laughs> that makes you scratch your head. Um, the um, the linebacker that picked off Brady there when the game was still competitive uh, for New England is the guy. He's the one that noticed. Um, that the balls were a little bit underinflated, and, you know, he let a staff member from Colts know who ended up letting Seth Pagano to Colts know, according to the article. Uh, but Dan Wetzel tweeted out that, you know, with them being 2% underinflated each ball, he said that's 16% underinflated. A linebacker for the Colts who rarely touches the ball notices, but not the rest? Strange story. And, I mean, he's got a point, you know, uh, he made the interception that prevented at least a New England field goal or touchdown, and that kept New uh, Indianapolis in the game for a little bit. But, yeah, for him to notice that right off the bat, uh, that's a little bit fishy. Um, and your guy, Jay yeah. Rice, even come in tweeted, your boy, Jay yeah. Rice, uh, yeah. says 11 of 12 balls underinflated. Can anyone spell cheating? Just saying. And I was like, wow, you know, Jerry coming out strong. But then, you know, of course, I always do remember as a 49er, but he was on that Raiders squad for the Tuck Rule game. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure he got, you know, animosity from that and then the whole spy game and also <laughs> there he goes letting it rip too, you know. So, it, I mean, it's, it's – and if the punishment is a fine or losing a draft pick, 
whoop de doo I mean, the, the Patriots have been contending and making deep playoff runs for years. They haven't had high draft picks in years. I mean, you're making a Super Bowl run or a title game run, you're picking last. You don't have, you you barely have a first-round pick anyway. I mean, that's not going to stop anything. You can say they do lose a third-round pick. I mean, big deal. I mean, we saw what happened after Spygate. You know, that didn't affect them, and they're continuing to be in the news for shady stuff like this. You know, different guys coming out, different quarterbacks, some coming out saying that this is common, it happens a lot. Brad Johnson, who uh, led Tampa Bay for the Super Bowl over the Raiders, last time the Raiders were good, said he paid to have the ball scuffed before that Super Bowl. Um, so that tampering is a common thing, but it's still you know, with the Patriots and drama going hand-in-hand hand for, a, uh, for almost a decade now. You can't just look at it and say, and kind of just shove it aside. Uh, there was also a story said that the Ravens came out and said the same thing. And, you know, the first instinct, if this was any other team and the Ravens now come out and say something, that'd be like, oh, come on, Baltimore, that's sour grapes. But it's, to me, it's New England. It's, if it was any other team, I would just dismiss whatever the Ravens said because, hey, y'all lost two weeks ago. Why y'all coming out saying something now? But it's New England, and this stuff just swirling around them all the time. Well, and, and here's uh, one thing. I've, uh, I was actually off today because I needed to recover from the late game today. So I've been watching ESPN, and they've had all their on their football shows uh, where the uh, you know the former players are are picking up. Uh, you know, can they tell the properly inflated ball? And not one, not one of them has missed the the one ball that was not inflated properly. And you know, and they've got a wide variety. I mean, uh, they had Mark Schler, an offensive lineman, who <laughs> at what point is he going to touch a football? <laughs> and they all he wasn't a center. He wasn't a center. Like, he did and, not and play center. And, you know, and uh, into a man. They all knew uh, that the ball was not properly inflated. And that's my thing. Yes, the Patriots, uh, you know, if it's it's deemed that they kind of had a whole system on doing it, you know, drop the hammer on them. But your officials, when you figure you've got at least three officials that touch a ball, you know, on every play, you know, the new, you know, ball comes in. From usually from the head linesman or the side judge on either side of the field, you know it comes into the uh, umpire who sets the ball, you know, uh, to get it ready for play. So you've got at least two or three officials touching the ball on every play. You would just think they would know a difference, particularly, you know, doing it for New England and then doing it for Indy. You would think they would be able to tell a difference. Yeah, yeah, and where do you do? Each team has their own balls anyway, or, or is that – I mean, I know it's always been that way, and it's like that at every level, but, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's just the well, football. And, 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 here's, and here's the thing. Uh, yeah, every, every team, particularly, you know, college, because, you know, Kentucky uses the Nike ball and, and Louisville uses, you know, Adidas, that kind of thing, but – for the NCAA tournament, is the official Wilson ball, 
And ESPN had someone, I can't remember who it was, talking about how those balls are monitored. You know, the the ball they use for the actual game ball is not used, you know, in layup lines and that kind of thing. And there's a little bit, I'm saying there's a lot more security with that basketball than there is with these NFL footballs. It And it's just so strange because even with, Major League Baseball, uh, those baseballs are monitored more so than these NFL footballs. So there's a – at the very least, the NFL needs to change that policy and make things more uniform. Yeah. Yeah, because at one point uh, in baseball, I think you had the Colorado Rockies putting balls in the humidor to dry them out so they wouldn't travel as far in the the, – thin air there in Denver. But, yeah, like you said, everybody's monitoring stuff now, and you're going to have to do something. I mean, there's people that are dismissing this, and then there's people that are saying, hey, this is, you know, come on now, especially with it being New England. And this whole playoff, there's been a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, Indominus Sue was suspended, then he was unsuspended uh, for the first playoff game against Dallas. Uh, you had the pass interference call where they threw a flag and picked it up. That went the Cowboys' way, but it was kind of iffy. Um, the following week, you know, got Des Bryant with the catch that wasn't a catch uh, against Green Bay. And now you got all this going after, you know, New England, you know, has won and advanced to the Super Bowl. And this is all on the field stuff. Of course, we know what happened leading up to the season with, you know, uh, Greg Hardy, Ray Rice, uh, Adrian Peterson. I mean, it's just, oh, and this is the most popular sport in the country. This is the, the NFL, who is the king, who has just got issue after issue after issue and, and black eye from PR standpoint going on. So it's, this is something else. And, of course, Roger Goodell, we see the thin ice and the the uh, taint that is on his reputation, the tarnish that is on his uh, rep. So this is just something else to add to the pile of stuff that's happened for the NFL this season. Yeah, and he's and he's got the he's got the hammer. Uh, he's got the if if the Patriots, you know, if the investigation says, hey, they did X, Y, and Z, he's got to drop the hammer because I I think a lot of people kind of felt that he it was just a wrist slap with Spygate because he's kind of buddy buddy with Robert Kraft, the uh Patriots uh owner. Uh and then you see kind of what happened in you know with Bounty Gate uh down in New Orleans where, you know, yeah. Sean Payton had to go away for a year. And mm-hmm. and that was that was devastating. And I think if you've got a repeat offender franchise, you've got to be able to drop the hammer uh, you got to drop the hammer on them. Yeah, I had um, I was listening to um, ESPN radio on the way home from work, and Mark Grinnell, former Jacksonville Jaguars quarterback, was on with uh, SVP and Ryan Rosillo, and uh, they're asking him the same thing. And he was of the notion that I mean, the NFL is not going to do anything to mess with the Super Bowl. Of course, these events have helped New England get to the Super Bowl. 
They had a close game against Baltimore because they blew out the Colts. But no matter how hard they're hit, if it's you know it, if it's after the Super Bowl, this is the Patriots. They like hey, we can live with that. You know we can live with losing a third round draft pick, or if we pay a fine, it's it, it, it's not going to affect their next game. And he didn't think that the league would do anything discipline-wise leading up to the Super Bowl. Um, and Dominican soon played in the playoff game right after, you know, looking like he stomped on Aaron Rodgers' leg. You know, it, So if they're going to let him play a playoff game, are they going to keep everything intact for New England going into the Super Bowl? It doesn't matter how hard they're hammered if it, you know, if New England wins the Super Bowl, they don't care. I mean, they already made it to the Super Bowl. Okay? So it's kind of like, you know, we made it to base safe. Playing hide and seek, we're we're at base now. You can say you found me, you can say you tagged me, but no, I mean, I'm really Teflon now. Nothing's going to stick to me. Yeah. Uh, they've got to do something. If And here's my thing. You, you've got a lot of these sports folks that, uh, are coming down hard on all of the steroid users in baseball. And, uh, you know, they're kind of giving the Patriots, for the most part, a, a, a pass on this. And my thing is cheating is cheating. You know, it, it doesn't matter if, you know, Brad Johnson says, hey, I had the, the ball scuffed up, uh you know, back in the Super Bowl. I mean, this was a systematic. I, I think it's different if it's one guy that's getting getting the balls kind of scuffed up versus. I mean, if they were able to get eleven out of twelve footballs and, and alter them in any way, that's more than just one guy doing that. There's got to be a system to it, and and Belichick's got to know what's going on. Yeah, uh, and. You know, same thing with, with Roy Williams in North Carolina. He's got to know what's going on there. No different for Belichick. You know, being the overseer of that team, the head coach of that team. Right, and and that is what uh, Roger Goodell actually said when it came down to, uh, you know, in New Orleans that if Sean Payton didn't know, he should have known because he's the head coach and the burden rests with him. Well, you've got to say the same thing for New England. Belichick didn't know, and you have to think that Brady had to know, then they've got to drop the hammer. Yeah. And, of course, saying and knowing and doing – it's two different things as we saw with Spygate. So, uh, I mean, if it happens, I'll be surprised if it happens. Should a hammer be dropped? Yes. But I'll just have to wait and see because <laughs> we're talking about New England here. And they got a pretty <laughs> long track record of stuff now. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you don't, I'm not going to hold my breath that something substantial will happen, but. You know, we'll see. Yeah. So, had to touch on that. That's basically the biggest news of the day. Because I'm sure you were inundated with it. 
being off work is probably the, the lead story of everything you did watch today. Uh, oh yeah, you, yeah. So we'll we'll see what happens. Uh, switching back to the NBA and mm-hmm. your Lakers and your guy Kobe uh, talked about how he he's not done. He's going to continue to play, and he's also going to continue to recruit former Cat, former Boston Celtic current Dallas Mav, Rajon Rondo to L.A. What do you think about that? Well, I definitely would love uh, for, for Rondo to end up uh, in L.A. I think he's one of those former cats that, you know, I don't think he's as embraced as, as other, other players uh, in U.K. history. But uh, you know he is a former cat, and I'd love to see him in uh, in L.A. Um, I think that that Kobe and the games I've watched, I've been really surprised that okay, he's still going to get the last shot. Okay, that's not going to change, but he's really changed the way he approaches. I mean, he's had some triple doubles. He's had some nice assist nights that. A lot of folks, including myself, didn't know if he would be able to make that transition. You know, we talked about Sean Marion kind of changing his game as he got older, and uh, I think we touched on this over the summer. I didn't know that Kobe would be able to do that, uh, can extend his uh, career a little bit more. You know, if he couldn't go out and and shoot the ball 30 times a night, I I didn't know if he would be able to, to mentally do that, but he surprised me a little bit. And if he could somehow get another uh, stud player to come to L.A., uh, you know, perhaps they, they make some noise if he kind of slides into that secondary role. And this uh, article I had pulled up was um, from the Dallas News. You know, Kobe says that he's not done. He's not going to um, stop as far as the recruiting of Rondo, I'm not stopping until he signs an extension. And, I mean, I was all for Rondo becoming a member of the Houston Rockets. You know, he's in Texas now, but, you know, he's at the wrong team in Texas as far as I'm concerned. Ever since, you know, they were, you know, talking about breaking up the big three and, you know, and all these different things to kind of rebuild the Celtics uh, and they kind of moved away from the old guys and trying to move to a, a new, younger direction. I was hoping that, that Rondo would end up in He would be, to me, you know, perfect for what Houston's got going on. I mean, James Harden brings up the ball a lot. He's got the ball in his hands a lot. But Rondo's not a guy that's looking to score. I mean, you know, he can or, you know, but we know he's all about penetrating, he's all about addition. His game is unique, and he's a great defensive point guard, and he was a little bit better defensively this year, but last year they were horrible on defense. So he would have fit right in. They love to run. He's Rondo on that break, you know, getting it to finishers like Howard, uh, getting it to James Harden in his spots. I mean, that just, to me, was just great. It didn't pan out that way. But I always, you know, had a soft spot for Rondo. Always liked him, of course, being a UK guy. Uh, I have never been a Celtics fan 
or a Lakers fan, as you know. But when they played in the finals, uh, I was definitely pulling for the Celtics. That, and I've never done that. But I was, and of course, the Celtics, they split two titles. Uh, I was pulling for Boston to win both of those. Um, never forget the game two he had against the Heat in the conference finals, that 44-point assist game he had against the Heat. They ended up losing that series in seven. Uh, but he still got some gas in the tank. And whether he stays in Dallas for a while or if he changes scenery again, he'll, he'll still be able to help the team out no matter what he goes. Yeah. Uh, I just think that just his his personality, his kind of aloofness, I think, uh, kind of kept him from being embraced here in Lexington and to some extent in in Boston, but his ta- his talent is undeniable. I mean, you can't uh, you can't say enough about how talented he is is as a, as a point guard. So, I would love to see him in the purple and gold. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I know you would. Uh, I'll probably just pull against that because I'm not for anything good for the Lakers. Uh, but we'll see how that plays out. And, and that hurts. That hurts right there. That's, uh, you know, we can all get along. So I didn't mean for it to be that big of a dagger. I, it's just, it's just the Blakers and Celtics have won so much. And as a kid, if you're a fan of both, it was great. I mean, you know, I respected Magic and Bird. I still remember the Converse Weapons commercials. Those were great. Uh, and, but, I just couldn't pull for either one of them. I mean, I enjoyed watching them go at it in the final. I still remember Magic hitting that baby hook in 87. Uh, I know you do. I'm, I'm just, you know, all these plays by heart. Um, the battles they used to have, the series they used to have, it was it was epic. But I just I, I just couldn't have either team as fans of mine. But that's just me. <laughs> But they'll both be back sooner than later, as they always do. They both find ways to get back. That's why there's 33, 35 banners between the two teams. Well, let the record show that Boston, it takes a little bit longer for them to get back. 84 to 2008 was a long time. Uh, the the <laughs> Lakers are, are, are rarely out of it. So let I'm just going to throw that in. And <laughs> hey, now, if um, – if Glenn Bias doesn't tragically pass, do they continue to remain? Do they continue to contend? Because I I think Glenn was really before our time, but that thirty for thirty on him was something else. And if you have Larry Bird passing the torch to Glenn Bias, who will probably pass it to you know Paul Pierce, or if if it works out that way, heck, they might not be in a position to draft Paul Pierce if Lynn Bias has the team playing the way everybody thought he could have. And then you got the tragic passing of Reggie Lewis, too. But if, if Lynn goes to Boston and has the career that Red Arback and everybody thought he would have had, do you think they would have had such a huge drought? No, and, and that's been – and when you when you look at Boston's history, and even the Lakers as well, the one thing – that Boston did up until that point and the Lakers is you replace talent with talent. When you look at the run that the Celtics had in the 60s, 
with Kuzi and Bill Russell and then Havlicek and, and Dave Cowens and those guys in the 70s to get some titles. And then next thing you know, they bring Larry Bird and, and your head coach, Kevin McHale, in and win some more titles. You have to think that bringing Lynn Bias in would kind of keep that going uh, because that's the one thing uh, that the Lakers have always done. You know, this is the first time in a long time when they don't have an heir apparent kind of ready to go. Uh, and no real real plan. You know, you go from George Mikan, you bring in Wilt and, and Jerry West and those guys, and then uh, you bring in Kareem and, and, and you know, we make that transition to Magic. And then Magic, with his abrupt, you know, first retirement, uh, you know, then, you know, in a few years, you've got your Eddie Jones and Nick Van Exel teams, uh, Cedric Sabalos, that are, you know, contending once again. And then, oh, hey, look, we shot, we signed Shaq and draft Kobe, and here we go again. But kind of here we are at the crossroads, and there's no real what's that next step going to be. So uh, it's an interesting area for both teams to be in right now. Absolutely. And we'll see how your boy Little Bus uh, steers things as well as what goes on in Boston. Uh, that was pretty objective talking to you about the hated Celtics as well. I mean, you're on point. Oh, you know, yeah. And, you know. And, uh, uh, game recognizes game, as the kids say. You know, we're skewing the show <laughs> a little bit longer uh, since we're going to iTunes. We've got we've got to do what the kids do, so... Uh, game recognizes game, and uh, you know Boston. You know up until uh, Lynn Bias's death, they had their kind of plan and vision uh, in line. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. The league is a whole lot different, you know, than it was even when you know uh, Shaq and Kobe, uh, you know, and Paul Pierce coming in at around the same time. Uh, it's different than it was even back then. So uh, we'll we'll see how it goes. But I have faith. Uh, in the Lakers, not so much in junior bus, but I think that they'll be back. Yeah, yeah. And just one mm-hmm. more thing on bias that I think that might have been uh, one of the first thirty for thirties that I saw. Uh, it was early when the series was just, you know, becoming uh, household and popular. And I mean, Lynn, of course, was there at Maryland just a shade before Jordan. He was taller, uh, bigger, more muscular than Jordan. Of course, Jordan was skinny coming out, as, as most guys are, and then you know hit the prime physically and, and continue to grow. But uh, Lynn was ripped at Maryland. There was a picture of him. I mean, just as good of a leaper, of an athlete. I mean, we we saw, we've seen the clips of what his game was like, uh, the talent not only just an athlete that can run and jump, but could actually play the game and play it well. But he was, I mean, sculpted. He was a man already there at Maryland. So, I mean, you know, the scouts and you hear coaches talking about that NBA-ready body, he had that. And just those pictures and clips, it was just it was just really cool for me that somebody who wasn't old enough to see him play, you know, game in and game out, uh, being too young for that, so it was just really impressive watching that to see what a player he really was. But yeah, it would have been um, 
cool to see him in the league. The league would have been better uh, had he been able to play and have a good career. And, of course, you know, the league is always better when the perennial powers, you know, the Celtics, the Lakers, Knicks, Bulls, bigger cities, bigger markets, legendary, tradition-rich teams are good. So, yeah, it, it would have been something to see. Definitely. I, I think that the uh, every league, when your marquee franchises are at least in the mix, makes for better television. Uh, and and for better fan interest. I mean, if you you got the the Cowboys playing the Packers, you know, with shades of you know the Ice Bowl. I mean, that's a that's a big game. Uh, you know, not to take anything away from the the Seahawks and or even the Patriots, but when you've got franchises in it that have kind of laid the foundation for the league, I think that's a that's a good thing. Like you know, you hate it, but. When the Yankees are at their best, that kind of brings out the best in everybody else. Uh, yeah. In the same way with the, the, the Lakers and the Celtics, uh, you have a lot of bandwagon fans for those winning franchises, but you have a lot of diehard fans as well. You know, when you look, even though the Lakers, the on-the-court product hasn't been great, the attendance is still pretty good. Uh, same way for the, the historically awful Knicks. Uh, but they do have a whole lot of diehard fans as well. So I just think it's good when those teams, as you said, are, are real good. Yeah. Uh, we talked quite a bit of NBA. Uh, one other little nugget, uh, Michael Jordan, of course, the greatest player to play, uh, big shot head honcho of the Charlotte Hornets now, was recognized as, Charlotte Business Journal's Business Person of the Year. And, of course, when he first took over down there, you know, he, he caught a lot of grief about the way he was doing things or his commitment to even being an owner. Uh, was he going to try to build a winner? Like, you know, he questioned his moves. He questioned the transactions that he made, uh, him wanting to play golf, or is he really committed? MJ really wanted to sit in there and watch film and watch guys play and do this and do that and do everything it takes to build a winner. Uh, and Jordan's actually, he teared up and he's emotional and, and, you know, he's talked about how he was proud to come back home to Charlotte, being a North Carolina native and uh, committed to building a winning team there. So, it was, I mean, he got the recognition there and he, he got him in the playoffs last year. Uh, he talked about how if you think that he's, uh, in this, for the short term, you better pull your socks up and hang around because my promise to this organization and this community is to bring a winner. That was his quote uh, after being recognized for that award. The, the fact that he was emotional and cheering up after getting his recognition, that, that was kind of what well, surprised me, especially when you think about his Hall of Fame speech. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that. <laughs> Yeah, the, the Hall of Fame speech, uh, yeah. I, I wasn't a big fan, but that's just me. Uh, but when you look at it in relation to everything else, that was uh, that was Michael Jordan. Um, but I think it's good to see him kind of take what made him a great player on the court and, and use that, uh, you know, to run a team. Because it's not too many players that can do that. Uh, when you look, there's not too many great players that make for great coaches. 
Uh, and part of that is they don't see the same fire they had in their team. You know, Larry Bird will tell you that was one of his biggest issues with the Pacers. You know, and Magic said that after his short stint coaching the Lakers, that sometimes, you know, the great players don't make necessarily make the best coaches. Uh, but sometimes I think there's a better track record of, of them being executives. Uh, you know, Jerry West uh, comes to mind. Uh, you know, Kiki Vandeweg, uh in Denver uh, assembled some pretty good teams out there as well. So, you know, Isaiah Thomas notwithstanding, uh, I, I think that uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't leave that uh, couldn't leave that stone uh, unturned. But uh, you know, and, and selfishly, you know, with uh, Michael K. Gilchrist uh, from UK being in Charlotte, you want to see them uh, do well uh, as uh, for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, and. Um, when Chip Gilchrist was out uh, earlier with an injury, the, the team struggled and, and took on a lot of losses. Uh, so having him back defensively uh, definitely helps as he's a lot of times locking up the other team's best perimeter player. Same thing in New Orleans. you got Anthony Davis who's coming back from a toe injury. Uh, the Pelicans lost to the Knicks without him last night. Um the Knicks had lost 16 in a row. It's been forever since they won a game. Uh, the, the Pelicans were coming off of back-to-back. Didn't have Anthony Davis, but that's still, uh, you know, that's one that they'll look back and hope that they could have gotten back. But, and you know, if, if Davis is out there, uh, it's probably a pretty good chance the Pelicans leave the Garden with a win as well. So his impact was missed with him not being in the lineup against New York and for the few games he's been out too. Well, and that's going to be the problem for the Pelicans is you've got Anthony Davis who is putting up, you know, MVP numbers. What They're going to have to quickly bring in some more support pieces or, you know, he's going to be like LeBron and, and taking his talents elsewhere. Uh, you yeah. know, does he return to Chicago? Does he, you know, I don't know, go to Los Angeles? I mean, there's a lot of things he can do, and you, the the Pelicans are going to want to try to keep him. Uh, but you know, if he kind of gets into his prime, how much of his prime is he going to waste on a situation where he doesn't see it? Improving, uh, so that's got to be on the leadership's mind in uh, New Orleans. Because when you see when he's not in the lineup, it's a totally different. It, that team, they are the Knicks without Anthony Davis <laughs> in the lineup. So yeah, yeah. Uh, they're definitely going to have to bring in some other pieces to, to to help him out. That's for sure. And um, as of right now, they sit. 20 and 21, uh, which is last place in the Southwest Division. Southwest Division is loaded as in the Western Conference. Four right now of the eight playoff teams would come from the Southwest Division, that being um, Memphis Grizzlies, my Houston Rockets, Dallas Mavericks, and the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, Phoenix has an eighth seed right now. They're 25 and 18. Uh, So New Orleans is. 
about four games out of that eighth spot. Uh, so they'll be able to maybe track down the sun and get in, remain to be seen. But, uh, yeah, and as far as Anthony Davis going to Los Angeles, uh, him and DeAndre Jordan would make a great Twin Towers. So, yeah, that's that talk. Hmm. Now, there's, there's been an awful lot of Lakers slander on this show, and I'm not sure I'm not sure I'm a big fan of it. Uh, as the kids like to say, there's there's a lot of hater. Uh, you sound like a hater out there. See, again, we're we're skewing younger since we're going on iTunes. We're we're going to the younger crowd now, so I'm going to say hater. So there you go. Him and DeAndre would be good. They they would both be in L.A. That's that's what I was. Uh-huh. <laughs> Hey man, let's let's uh as we turn back for the last few minutes, just looking at the SEC, we talked about the conference. We kind of gave an overview at the beginning of the show, but of uh, course Kentucky sits you know five and zero, and surprisingly Tennessee is four and one. Tennessee's in second right now. Most would have probably had Florida there. Now, they're just a game out of second at 3-2 and two in the conference. But they are 10-8 and eight overall, TV. They lost two in a row. Uh, after starting 3-0 in the conference, they lost uh, at Georgia and then lost at home last night bad to LSU. They're 10-8, and 3-2 and two in the conference. And just, it's just not what you're used to seeing from Florida. Well, and I, t- I talked with some of the other folks at the game last night. What what really separates uh, Kentucky basketball from the rest of the SEC, besides being good, is, is is consistency. You know, when you look at what Tubby was doing, uh, even his last couple of years, which wasn't great by Kentucky standards, but he was still competitive within the conference. You know, he was still winning the SEC tournament, SEC regular season championship, and anywhere else, and he set for life. And I think we've touched on this before. There's just that that need for another team to become a year-in, year-out kind of rival to Kentucky. You know, way back when – you know, Tennessee, Ernie and Bernie looked like they might do it. And then that fell off. And then uh, a lot of people thought, I thought when Arkansas joined with Nolan Richardson uh, in the mid to late 90s, you thought that was going to be a good back and forth because the first, you know, five or six games uh, the, the, uh, the Cats and the Hawks played were, were very, uh, very competitive. And, and both teams were, you know, winning championships and whatnot. And then, you know, Billy Donovan gets his back-to-back Florida team, you know, and they fall off. And last year they're, you know, real good again, and now they're down. And that's what kind of separates the real good programs. There's not a lot of down years. Uh, So I don't know who's going to become, if ever, there will be a team that will rival Kentucky year in, year out. Yeah, yeah, and you think about LSU was sitting third now. I think, I think in '86, when uh, back then you were a Louisville Cardinals fan, I think LSU made the Final Four that year, and then they up and made it 
in the early 2000s when John Brady was there. Uh, they had a good team with Shaq and Stanley Roberts, Chris Jackson, Slash, Mahmoud, Abdul Rahouf were there. But they've been up and down a lot as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it comes and goes. Uh, Missouri had a, a good team that the first year they came into the SEC when Frank Hayes yeah. was there before it all kind of fell apart with him. They had a good team there uh, in Missouri. Of course, now they're uh, down at the bottom this year. Uh, we saw what just happened when they came to Ripper Arena. They lost about 49. They're 1-3 in, in league play, 7-10 uh, overall. So, Georgia last night, Stephon Moody put on another show. He had 26 uh, again, but Georgia came out on top. So, yeah, it's just a, it's a, a big pack of teams hovering around 500. Uh, even Auburn, which isn't good, they're 2-2. Two two. Ole Miss has dropped to 2-3. And, and then it's Texas A&M. Alabama, Arkansas, all at two and two, in Florida, Georgia, LSU at three and two, and then Tennessee at four and one. So it's just a big jumbled up group. Of South Carolina started off good, but South Carolina, Vanderbilt, Missouri are, are are bad. Mississippi State's bad. Then everybody else is jumbled in there together. The next about six, eight teams, you know. Or just jumbled in there behind Kentucky. Yeah, uh, and I can't remember which sports writer actually put that out there, but after Kentucky, you've got between the two and the eight spot in the SEC, there's only a game or two in the standings separating everybody else. So a lot of teams are going to have the opportunity to kind of become that second, third-place team as the SEC tries to become that uh, – you know, at least a three-bid league, hopefully four, but I don't see that, you know, in the tournament. Uh, so we'll see. There's going to be a lot of, you know, a lot, still a lot of basketball left. And, you know, uh, there's going to be one of these teams that are going to try to – I think the team, if any of them, that can trip up Kentucky, you know, if that's South Carolina this weekend, you know, hopefully – you know, I'm not hoping that happens, but I think if there's a team that can do that, you know that I think can that kind of win can propel them, you know, uh, you know, to a second or third place finish, whoever that is. And one of those, if whoever the team is that's able to do it, it's one of those that will those season defining type things. They'll look back and say that you know beating Kentucky is what you know for like you said got us to finish the season and turn things around. Blah blah blah. Yeah, that is the one thing from all these ESPN documentaries that I've seen that, of course, being a Kentucky fan, I'm looking for any nugget, but uh, it was the SEC documentary on Nolan Richardson and how when they joined the SEC, uh, they pointed to one game where they beat Kentucky at Rupp, and Corliss Williamson said uh, – that's when we knew we had a good team because we went into Rupp Arena and beat Kentucky. Also, mm-hmm. at the Fab Five documentary, you know, Jalen Rose is talking about in the Final Four there in 93 that they weren't worried about North Carolina because they felt they had already won the championship because they beat that Kentucky team with Jamal Mashburn. 
So, you know, in those in those two two nuggets, it it, it says to me that Kentucky is a measuring stick, and you know, if one of those teams this year able to, like I said, steal one steal a game, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they use that to springboard into something greater. Kentucky's just a, they're a measuring stick program, and uh, you know, I'm hoping that doesn't happen for any team, but if it does. I could see that being a game changer for their season. Absolutely. And in both of those games, in 92 and 93, against Duke and Michigan, match foul out of both of those games. Remember, of course, I know you remember watching too, but uh, the game there in 93 against Michigan, well, 81 to 78. And, of course, we all have the 92. But, man, it just killed me. hate seeing him you know, not be able to finish and be on the floor for the end of both of those. Oh, uh, definitely. And, you know, uh, the phantom foul, the hook and foul on on Weber against Michigan, because they had no answer for him at that point. When when Mash started going, the other team just literally had no answer. And you think the two biggest games of his Kentucky career, the two most memorable games, uh, you know, questionable foul calls kind of prevented him from being, uh, you know, the hero. So that I, I know that's got to be frustrating uh, for him, even though he did a lot of great things. Those those two games, those two endings, you have to think have to kind of gnaw away a little bit. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and about to wrap things up for this episode. Did you have any soapbox that you had just saved up, just letting it build for a while? What's, what's the status? <laughs> no, I've, I've been uh, kind of soapbox free. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, Michelle at Forever Big Blue, when she catches the, the, the podcast, she might be a little disappointed. But no real uh, soapbox, soapbox moment uh, this week. Uh, because hey, I'm just I'm enjoying the Kentucky basketball season. Uh, you know, getting a chance to cover them up close has been a has been outstanding. So hey, no no soapbox moments for me tonight. Yeah, I'm I'm all right. I kind of went on a little, you know, still mad that the Hawks trade Donnie Wilkins thing last week, but uh, I'm good to go. Uh, looking forward to the game against South Carolina Saturday. Got some NBA to check out tonight. Uh, I'm going to stay up a little later than I need to and and peep at my Rockets against Golden State. I'd like to hopefully see them have better results tonight because Houston's playing pretty good, but Golden State has just beaten them down every time they played. Uh, So maybe they'll have a little something for Steph Curry and Klay Thompson tonight. They can come out with a win there. Uh, But other than that, uh, we're good. Uh, want everybody to continue to check out the show. Appreciate everybody listening. Um, you can catch the podcast here on Blog Talk, blogtalkradio.com slash cats talk. Or, as TV and I've been talking about, check it out on iTunes. Uh, every episode will be there, archived up, it's ready to hit play. If you miss anything, you can go back and hit it all right there. So, we're excited about that. Uh, Continue to try to keep 
tweaking and adding and touching up little things on the show, man. Oh yeah, it, it's great. And 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 kids, we're we're skewing younger, so we're going to try to get some of the kids uh, involved uh, in the show. That's right. That's right. And uh, we'll talk a little more NBA stuff in the future. We got some guests getting the works next week. Um, you've been DMing me on Twitter about that. Uh, get a couple guys lined up, talk a little NBA, maybe some Toronto Raptor stuff in the future. There's some UK guys there. Of course, Dwayne Casey is the coach. We'll have some of that in the future. Uh, Atlanta Hawks are surprising everybody. And as a former Hawks fan, good for them, but I still can't root for them. But they are 34-8, and eight, and that's tearing it up in the East. So we'll see if they can carry that over into the playoffs. Uh, enjoyed everything tonight. Hope everybody has a good evening. Appreciate all the knowledge TV. Check them out on wildcatsconvention.com and, of course, on Twitter. Check us out on Facebook page, Cat Talk Wednesday. Cat Talk Wednesday on Twitter. And the new podcast on iTunes, as the kids say. That's going to keep us young, TV. The podcast will keep us young. That's right. iTunes will keep us young. 37 is the new 27. (laughs) That's what they tell me. (laughs) Hope everybody has a good night. Everything, TV. Uh, have a good rest of the evening, good rest of the week, man. You did the same. All right, we'll see y'all next week for another episode of Cat Talk with Vinny and Terry on the Brandon Hardy Radio Network and blogtalkradio.com. Y'all take care. <laughs> <laughs>